Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. This is Cal Raustiala, and I'm really honored to have on the podcast today Larry Johnson. Larry was previously the Assistant Secretary General for Legal Affairs at the UN, has held a number of other uh, important posts at the IAEA, as well as uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and is currently a professor at Columbia Law School. I've invited Larry on the podcast to talk about uh, a couple of different issues, but most critically, the issue of the recent visa denial uh, by the United States of the Iranian foreign minister uh, that occurred just uh, just earlier this year. And given Larry's background, uh, I thought he would be a terrific person to kind of explain the context and give us some insights into how that process generally works, as well as some of the specifics. So, Larry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to be here, Cal. Thank you. Great, great. So, um, so let's start with the issue of uh, of the of the visa denial. So, this obviously came in a context of really significant tensions, uh, and even uh, arguably armed conflict between the United States and Iran. Things have heated up enormously in the last couple of months. Uh, but this is a sort of diplomatic front in in that larger conflict, and. It's not the first time there's been an issue around a foreign leader wanting to come to the United Nations and and uh, maybe having difficulty or, or having restraints put on it, uh, put on the visit. So maybe before we get into the specifics of, of this incident, uh, you could offer a little bit of context in terms of the requirements of the UN uh, presence in New York, what the U.S. has agreed to under the headquarters agreement. Just give us a sense of the frame here. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, the the um, the current problem with Iranian, Russian, Cuban, other diplomats in at the U.N., um, there are a couple of issues. The first one is, ab- is absolute denial of a visa, um, and that will, we can talk about first, and then comes the related issue of delays in issuing the visa and how those are those are related. And then there's another issue, third issue would be travel restrictions. So that even if they do issue a visa to a diplomat, they will restrict the visa. Um, it used to be if they restricted visas to countries that the U.S. is not friendly with, it would be within a, a radius of 25 miles of Columbus Circle in uh, in New York City. Why they picked Columbus Circle, I have no idea. <laughs> but in this latest uh, in, incident... But Larry, if I might interject, you know, just for those unfamiliar yep. with New York, Columbus Circle is actually not really close to the U.N. The U.N. is uh, situated over on the East River all the way uh, exactly. on First Avenue, and Columbus Circle is, yep. I guess, essentially... 8th Avenue, 9th Avenue, I'm trying to think that we stopped yeah, using the numbers Central up there. Central Park, it's at the bottom, it's at the yeah. bottom, it's at the southwest, southwest corner, corner of, of Central Park. But that's effectively 8th or 9th Avenue. nothing to do with the U.N. I mean, nowhere near the U.N. <laughs> so I don't know why they picked, and nobody, people have asked me, and I didn't, you know, I've never known, and that would have been from the you know, 40s and 50s or whatever. But even recently, the Iranians have been restricted to uh and they don't inform the UN of this, by the way. It's only the U.S. telling the particular 
government mission, and then the mission will tell the UN that they're restricted to so many blocks or areas on First Avenue, and you know, they, I mean, the Iranians uh, have been restricted very, very much to where their mission is and where the UN headquarters is. So that's a separate issue, okay? Um, and then there's another issue that diplomats complain about that they only get single entry visas. So the minute they leave for any purpose, family, official business, or whatever, then they have to turn around and wait again for months and months to get another visa to get back in. So there are all kinds of uh, entry issues, but the but the most legal one, the most the one interesting from a legal point of view is entry, which stems from the 1947 headquarters agreement that was negotiated between the U.S. and the U.N. Um, uh, basically, the Secretariat, and then it went to Congress for its approval, and then it was going to go to the General Assembly of the U.N. for its approval. Okay. So the, uh, uh, the, uh, the agreement itself says the U.S. is obligated with no conditions and no exceptions to let certain people in in order to have access to and from the headquarters district, okay? So it doesn't mean they get to go to Disneyland or go to Omaha for good steaks or Memphis or whatever. It just means they have access to and from the headquarters agreement. And these are representatives of member states. These are officials of the organization. It's a it's a big group of people. It's uh, NGOs in consultative status. It's it's the press, uh, specialized agencies, and so on. And all these people are, are and finally the the category is other persons invited to the headquarters district. So all of these are collectively called UN invitees, as it were. So Larry, can the, just the pause US, for a second? Can can you sure. clarify what the headquarters district? Is does it encompass more than simply the UN campus as it as it's generally understood on on the east side of First Avenue? It will it will encompass where the UN has offices. So you're right. It's you know originally it was that campus, and it, it's all defined in the agreement by you know uh, <laughs> latitude and longitude and and streets and so on. Very technically, it, it wow. is indicated what the district is. Um, and then when the UN will rent offices in the city, because of course it's it's grown and there's not enough capacity, then yes. there will be supplementary agreements which will extend the headquarters agreement to those buildings. Okay. Now, I recall the so, UN... Uh, UNDP, for example, UN, UNDC, UNDC1 and UNDC2, where UNDP is, and then there's a UNICEF building, and all of those buildings have been uh, incorporated into it into a precise uh, definition of the headquarters district. I see. And, and the UN initially was, was actually out in, in Lake Success, uh, Queens, Correct. for the first few years. Did the headquarters agreement uh, post-date that, or how did they use that? It was so specific about the location. I'm just curious how, they, how that was finessed, or did the agreement come after the move to Manhattan? There must have been, but I don't know that the answer to that question about how Lake Success was covered. It was an old Sperry, I think was the name of it. It was a gyro plant that was used in World War II that was offered for a temporary UN headquarters. And then the UN would meet at like Hunter College, and then they met, the General Assembly would meet up, you know, in big auditoriums, like mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, out in Queens. Uh, so, you know, they had different sites. And how they handled the P&I of all of that, I don't know, other than temporary arrangements. Uh, 
but this headquarters agreement was geared to the new campus. It was signed in 47, and I think uh, I don't know the year exactly when they accept, when they decided to to use that site in the new in the city of New York, which had been uh, slaughterhouses on the east side, and it was Rockefeller that bought up the land uh, and demolished the slaughterhouses, and then the UN building went up, and it was opened in '49 or '50. But I do know Trig V. Lee, you know, put the uh, cornerstone into the buildings, so in 49 or 50. But uh, I think the headquarters agreement is, is, is based on, on, on the Manhattan campus. Um, so anyway, the, in, the, in the headquarters agreement, okay, all those people were, were, were allowed in, and the U.S. was to suspend its immigration and other laws in order to allow those people access to and from the headquarters district. The underlying assumption was for UN business, obviously. So uh, that was fine. And then when it went to, and then there's another provision in the in the agreement that said if somebody comes in like a diplomat and abuses their privileges and immunities, then what do you do? Um, under normal diplomatic law, as you know, there's something called persona non grata, where uh, the host country can kick a diplomat out and just say you have 48 hours to get out, you're abusing your uh, privileges. Most of the time, at least in the old days, that meant espionage. So uh, so in the UN headquarters agreement, there's something parallel, but of course it's not really the same because these diplomats are not coming accredited to the U.S. government. They're coming to the UN. So it's not called PNG, persona non grata, but in effect it is where it's, it's in the agreement that if uh, the U.S. determines that one of these diplomats is abusing their privileges, uh, the uh, decision to uh, send that person home to a victim to, to get them out uh, can only be made under, under the authority, under the uh, official signature of the Secretary of State. So it's not some middle-level bureaucrat in the State Department that can kick people out. Plus, the sending country or the Secretary General have to be consulted under the headquarters agreement. So going back to 47, this goes to Congress. What happens in Congress, in the House of Representatives, uh, a congressman named Jake Javits, who later became senator. So Jake Javits, a Manhattan congressman, says to the legal advisor, well, what about if we don't want these people to come in here at all? That's not covered in there. And the legal advisor more or less said, well, look, once they get in, we can kick them out, you know, two days later <laughs> hmm. with abuse of privileges if they're misbehaving. And Javits said, yeah, but, you know, there may be some people we don't want here at all from the very beginning. And so he included in the text of what we would call the implementing legislation to the headquarters agreement, because for some reason, I think it was to attract universal political support for the organization. They didn't go to the Senate for two-thirds. This was effected by way of a public law, which went before both houses of Congress. It's, uh, it's a public law 357 uh, something or other. In any event, I can give you the citation later. It's a joint resolution adopted by the House and the Senate, signed by the President, which gives the President the authority to bring the agreement into force. Is that but, Larry? Is that the International Organizations Immunities Act? No, 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 no. It's a different, no. different statute. Okay. It's a different one. Yep. 
It's a different one completely. Um, and in it, they have various sections that authorize the president to sign it, to bring it into effect, and include the whole text of the agreement. But at, at the end, they have a number of sections. Some of it was, is technical about how to bring this into accordance with uh, uh, for with local law or, or what the president and secretary of state have to do, blah, blah, blah. For example, the president is authorized to make, a, to make effective with respect to the temporary headquarters. There's your question about Lake Success. On a provision, provisional basis, these provisions as may be appropriate. Hmm. So in some ways, it's kind of answered your question just by okay. chance. But then comes Section 6. And it's sort of infamous for the two or three people that know about this, where it says, nothing in this agreement, the original version said, nothing in this agreement should be construed as in any way diminishing, abridging, or weakening the right of the United States to safeguard. Sorry, the original said, weakening the right of the United States to control the entrance of aliens into any territory other than the headquarters district. Well, that was okay. That was drafted by the State Department. And that was okay because that's just another way of saying what's already in the headquarters agreement, which is, you know, you've got a right to go to and from the headquarters agreement. You don't have a right to go to, to Disneyland, right? But Jake Javits added a few words. And his words were, you know, nothing in the agreement shall diminish, weaken the right of the U.S., quote, to safeguard its own security, unquote. Boom. That's what's put in the national law that puts that headquarters agreement into effect. The U.S. then uh, sent it off to the General Assembly, did not highlight that aspect. It did just simply say, pursuant to public law so-and-so, uh, you know, here's the headquarters agreement for your consideration. By the way, the citation is public law 80-357. Thanks if you want to look it up. That's where the Section 6 appears. So they sent it to the General Assembly, and, there, and it went to the Sixth Committee, and they, you know, looked at it, and the, the U.S. negotiated. Every, every, everything was fine. Nobody focused on the fact that the U.S. had sent it by saying, pursuant to public law, da 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 huh? And then the General Assembly approved it, and that was it. And it sat there for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden... Uh, it reared, reared its head where the U.S. Uh, rejected the visa of, I think, a Czech diplomat that was coming in who had previously been in, in the Czech embassy and was accused of espionage and had been booted out. So the U.S. said, well, we're invoking Section 6. You know, we're protecting our national interests, and, you know, it's fine what the headquarters agreement says, but our public law says we can keep, keep him out. And the U.N. said, what are you talking about? We didn't know anything about Section 6. It's not in the agreement. And then it got worse in the early 50s where the U.S. refused entrance to two, I think there were two women, who were members of a what they considered a communist front Italian NGO hmm? that were invited to come to the Commission on the Status of Women and to ECOSOC in 52. And the U.S. said, nope, not going to do it. You're communists, and they're going and they're against our national. And bringing them in is against our national security. The UN legal office said again, "What are you talking about? Uh, you can't do that. You have an absolute obligation under the treaty." And the U.S. said, "That's a very nice treaty, but we have our public law, our domestic law. Boom, allows us to do this." 
and it became a nasty situation. Was there a lot of pushback uh, and, from the UN Secretariat, and, and yes, how was yes, that argued? Yes, uh, there were there's public documents that were issued, legal opinions, and so on, because what also made the UN unhappy uh, or re- pushback was the U.S. began calling it a national security reservation. Hmm? So, for those of you who are in, into treaty law. The UN said, no, 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 you can't have reservations to bilateral treaties, excuse me. You can have them to multilateral, but you can't have a reservation to a bilateral treaty. What you're doing is you're asking for a renegotiation of the bilateral agreement, right, in which case we have no headquarters agreement. And if you, or we go to arbitration. And if we have this, which is in, included in the headquarters agreement, the dispute clauses for arbitration. So the UN was threatening arbitration, and their delegates, of course, because these uh, these uh, NGOs had been invited by uh, either you know communist or non-aligned governments in the ECOSOC, so it became a big deal. But at the same time, Trigby Lee was leaving. This is in '53, early '53, or well, I don't know, spring, summer of '53, and Hammerschild arrives. He parachutes in, and he has this problem on his desk. And I think, I have no basis to say this other than my <laughs> gut reaction was, I think he said, I want to take this away from the lawyers. This is not helping, you know, because both lawyers were getting, you know, both sides were getting up on their, on their hind legs and saying, we have a legal right. And of course, for American lawyers, this is not easy because supreme law of the land is not only treaties, but acts of Congress, right? So was what Larry was there ever an invocation of the arbitration clause? Did anything ever come of that? In any not, of these instances? Not on that. No. Not on because that. Hammerschild intervened and he said I'm going to talk to the American ambassador. And I'm not sure if it was so Warren or may it may have been Lodge because oftentimes what I'm going to describe has been has been called the Hammerschild Lodge modus vivendi. In any event, Hammerschild has his political consultations with the American uh, ambassador, and then he comes back to Ecosoc and says, look, uh, you know, I'm not going to disagree with my lawyers. Uh, uh, there's an absolute right to come in, um, and uh, if there's a big problem here and if the U.S. is not following its obligations, we will go to arbitration, or arbitration is the is the." Uh, solution. But then he says, on the other hand, and I'm I'm just paraphrasing here all the citations I can send you if you want, because all of this is on the record, Hammerschel said, on the other hand, it's not in the UN interest to have people come to the US under some cloak or as a sheet, you know, to do something else. And they're using the the UN entry visa as a shield in order to do bad things against the interests of the host country. That's not within the spirit of the headquarters agreement. And he actually says at one point, I don't think this was thought about when the headquarters agreement was drafted. Hmm? Interesting. So he said, so from now on, I have assurances from the host country that when uh, they don't want to let somebody in, give a visa to any of this, any of these invitee categories, whether it's member states, secretariat, NGOs, press, invitees, that the U.S. will come to him, the Secretary General, with clear and convincing evidence why they think that individual is going to present a threat to the security interests of the host country. 
And he said in 53, I have assurances this is how we're going to work this out. Okay. So with that, he reported to ECOSOC. ECOSOC adopted a resolution which more or less said, uh, and it noted the report of the SG and expressed the hope that the remaining questions could be handled satisfactorily, blah, blah. So basically that um, Hammerschild modus vivendi was operating from, say, the 50s until 88, when then it rose its, its ugly head again, if I can call it that, which was when Yasser Arafat yes. uh, was invited to come to the uh, UN to deliver a speech on the question of Palestine. And this was in October, November of 88. And uh, George Schultz said, nope, he's not going to come. I mean, Kelly Laurel was maybe five years before. But in any event, the U.S. determined that Yasser Arafat was head of a terrorist organization, and it would be against the interests of the United States to have Yasser Arafat come into the country, even for one day. So they specifically said, we're invoking Section 6. He's a threat. That's our national law. He's not coming. So on this occasion, there was a lot of pushback in the UN, the Arab group, the non-aligned, uh, the Soviet bloc, and so on, that said, you can't do that. He's an invitee. He's, he's coming here, and he's not going to come for you know years and years and years. He's just coming for one day. And the U.S. said no. So it went to what's called the Host Country Committee, which is a committee that the UN, that the General Assembly established in the early 70s, to deal with host country problems. Now, this could be as mundane as parking problems, or it could be other issues about relations between the U.S. and the U.N., and it is specifically to look at the implementation of the host country agreement, headquarters agreement with the U.S.-U.N. So it went there, and in the course of which the uh, representative of the U.S. again invoked Section 6 and said this is long, this is part of our law, and this has long been our right, and we only do it exceptionally. But then they made a mistake and went on to say, and by the way, we've invoked this not many times, but several times since 1953, and the U.N. has never objected. So the U.N. has in our view, acquiesced or accepted this national security reservation, which uh, incensed uh, uh, the legal counsel at the time, Mr. Fleischauer, who said, in no way is that going to stand. So he drafted the a UN legal counsel. Yes, the UN legal counsel. And he drafted a reply over the lunch hour. He came back to the meeting and blasted the U.S. position by basically giving the history of what had happened and uh, and the history of uh, from 47 and the 53 Hammerschild thing, so on and so forth, and uh, basically said the UN had never acquiesced. And what happens is if there's a problem with a visa and the U.S. comes in and tells us they're not going to let somebody in, we go back to that country that, that is sending that person. Say, for example, it's from Nicaragua. And the U.N. will go to the Nicaraguan mission and say, look, the U.S. says they're not going to let this guy in. And if they don't complain, it goes away. Because why should the secretary at the legal council complain to the U.S. if the country that's sending the diplomat doesn't care enough to complain or doesn't think it's worth it? So for most of that time, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, when the U.S. would not let 
countries in, and all of this is under the table. None of this is publicized. Mm -hmm. The other countries or the sending entity would never complain, and it would just go away. Because I think they're used to bilateral relations where that's done, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you can, ex agreement, you can accept or not accept I mean, a diplomat that's coming into your country. But in the case of Arafat, the Arab group and the PLO objected vehemently. And therefore, that's when Fleischauer said, so, this is why it's before the host country committee, because in our view, and in the Secretariat's view, the U.S. was in violation of the headquarters agreement, and the U.S. had violated the Hammerschild modus vivendi because they had never come to the Secretariat with any evidence, whether it's clear and convincing or not, any evidence at all, that Arafat coming into this country would pose a threat to the security of the, of the host country. So that was discussed in the, host, in the host country committee. Same thing, it went to the General Assembly like two days later, and the General Assembly adopted a resolution which considered, here I'm quoting, the decision of the U.S., uh, a violation of the international legal obligations of the host country under the host country agreement, and urged the host country to abide scrupulously by the provisions of the agreement and reverse its decision. And that was the, the first US. time that the GA had made such a statement? Yes, yes. And the vote was 151 in favor, uh, two against Israel and the U.S., and one abstention. And the one abstention was the U.K. that made it clear that they agreed with the legal opinion that the U.S. was in violation of the agreement, uh, but they found that the resolution was too harsh. And they had wanted to tone down the language so it was less critical of the U.S. Uh, and that was not accepted. So that's why the U.K. abstained. So it was fairly, you know, it was a, it was a fairly uh, rough day for the U.S. I mean, you had all of NATO uh, condemning it for violating, you know, the host country agreement. Yeah. Um, and so what happened was... As, and as you pointed out, the logic would have been, okay, now we go to arbitration. But at that point, you know, it's a political point, is all of it, in two weeks' time, Arafat was supposed to come to New York in the middle of December to make the speech. And here we are, the 1st of December. What, what good is arbitration? So what they did, they decided to move the GA to Geneva for that one day. And just for so you listeners unfamiliar, the, the UN has a... Pretty major presence in Geneva. Right, other, right, 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 right. So there's the a huge office gunplays. that they inherited from the earlier organization. So they decided to move the General Assembly for one day to Geneva to listen to Yasser Arafat and have that debate on the Palestinian question in the UN office at Geneva. At some considerable expense, and by the way, who paid for that expense? 25% of it was paid by the American taxpayer. Right. So. It seems like a bit of a shot across the bow. In the sense of uh, pointing out, you know, we don't really need to be here in New York, though obviously it's incredibly costly to consider moving the UN. I know at one time there was a consideration of actually moving out of Manhattan, so it's not like it's never come up. Right, right. But now it's beginning to raise its uh, head again, at both the Section 6. So over the years after that incident, the U.S. has tried to avoid and they don't use the language they did in the past. They don't call it a national security reservation. They don't refer to, quote, Section 6, as it were. 
But in this latest incident of uh, Russians and Iranians saying that their visas had been denied, the U.S. language is, and I'm quoting here, it's well established that the U.N. should not be permitted to serve as a cover to enable persons in the U.S. to engage in activities outside the scope of their official functions that were prejudicial to the security of the United States. And they say the U.S. has always, it does say, reserved the right to exclude any individual where there is clear and convincing evidence that that individual was coming here for purposes outside the scope and prejudicial to the national security of the U.S. So that's language that comes from the old Section 6, as it were. They just don't actually invoke it as part of U.S. law because they know if they do, uh, the UN will come back and the legal counsel will come back, whoever he or she is at the time, to say, hey, we covered this in 1988 and that doesn't fly. And besides, what about the modus vivendi? So what you've had recently is a number of cases. It first began actually recently, well, it, it, even, it goes back many different administrations. I mean, al-Bashir, was going to come to the UN during the Obama administration. And um, from what I heard uh, anecdotally, the US policymakers wanted to just reject his visa completely and, uh, and deny it. And then people in legal said, well, you can't really do that, but maybe it takes a while to process the visa. So the Sudanese said that the US had denied his entry but the U.S. position is, no, no, we just, it just takes a long time. It's been delayed, and I'm so sorry the meeting is over. Guess you can't come after all. So that's why the linkage, because you have quite a few um, complaints that the U.S. is delaying visas, delaying, delaying for three months, six months. Right. And so they're not, they don't actually invoke Section 6, and they don't actually frontally deny they try to avoid frontally denying because they know there's going to be a reaction, as there has been lately. With uh, and you mentioned the denial of the foreign minister's visa, right? Yes. To this uh, meeting last month, the State Department and Pompeo denied that they didn't that they did that, and they said, "No, no, the Iranians just didn't give us enough time to go through the process of issuing the visa." So the question for lawyers actually is going to be, is the, or it is, not going to be, but is, whether U.S. is delaying visas just as a way to avoid a legal problem and possibly going to arbitration. Agreed. And at what point does people stand up and say, this is bad faith? Okay, maybe, maybe you can't issue a visa within one week, you know, but... You know, of delaying visas for three to six months is not a good idea. Agreed. So this is what happened in this last year, and it all came out in what's called the Host Country Committee Report, where you have various complaints from Syrians, Cubans, Russians, uh, whose visas of their diplomats, and including, a, by the way, a Secretariat member, a Russian national who was appointed to the Secretariat, and uh, his visa was denied with no explanation. But what unfortunately I don't see in any of these reports is any reference back to the old Dag Hammarskjöld modus vivendi. And you do have in these, uh, in these uh, discussions some 
complaining that the Secretariat has not exactly been out in front, defending the interests of either its staff or of its member states uh, whose visas have been denied. I do know that the Secretariat, uh, at one of the meetings of the Host Country Committee, reverted back to that 1988 legal opinion and reverted that this is the opinion of the Secretary General, that outright denial is a violation of the headquarters agreement, and that the modus vivendi should be utilized. And the U.S. has never really talked anything more about the modus vivendi, and so we continue to this day, but under some threat. They would call it a threat. Uh, the other countries would say, we're just trying to put pressure, on, leverage on the U.S. to do its duty. And that's in the form of a resolution, which the General Assembly adopted following the debate on these increased number of complaints where it says that basically if if uh, if this is not settled if these problems with visas are not resolved in a reasonable and finite period of time serious consideration will be given to taking steps under section 21 of the headquarters agreement and the russians complained that i think they said 15 to 18 of its diplomats uh, had their visas denied um, and a number of other people. And again, it, whether the U.S. is saying we didn't deny, we're just they just got delayed. Uh, you know, I think it's going to get if it doesn't if the U.S. doesn't do something, uh, it's going to blow up. Uh, the, the the Russians did pr make a proposal that uh, one of the committees of the U.N. General Assembly, the committee that these 18 diplomats were going to go to, disarm it was a disarmament committee. Uh, should be transferred, uh, should, you know, if it's not settled by the 1st of February, 1st of March, the meeting should be uh, moved to Geneva or Vienna. That failed, that amendment. Uh, but, you know, it's on the table and people are on notice that if this gets any worse, you know, you're going to hear more about what you were talking about, Cal, which is maybe moving either the whole General Assembly or bits and pieces to other places. Sure. Not surprising. Well, Larry, that was a I'm fantastic... Sorry, a very, I'm sorry that was a very long... <laughs> but no, it's, no, no. it's complicated and interesting because it's U.S. domestic law and international law. And uh, how does it play in practice on the ground? No, I agree. It is, it is really interesting and you really know this history well. I'll just note, with regard to... Uh, to Zarif, the, at least the reporting was that Pompeo did, in fact, say something to the effect of, uh, you know, we're going to abide by the agreements. But then in an interview with, with O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, uh, on Fox, he said, I, and I'm quoting, I don't think Secretary Pompeo thought that this was the right time for Mr. Zarif to come to the United States. <laughs> now, a statement like that does suggest that this was not simply yeah. a bureaucratic hurdle. Yeah. And, and yeah. so going to your point about is the U.S. acting in bad faith with regard to the headquarters agreement, and will that continue to spur uh, efforts within the U.N. to, you know, threaten? Now, of course, these threats are, they're, 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 not, uh, they're not super credible. They're not empty. They're somewhere yeah. in between. It's hard to move right. things. Right, uh, right. But, but what might be credible... Well, it might be credible is is going is trying going to section twenty one, is, is going to arbitration. 
Right. You know, right. That would because be interesting to people, see. How, how would that work, Larry? What would happen? Well, according to the agreement, you know, the, uh, and the, it's been invoked once that I know of, and that was that same year, 1988, the U.S. had a problem with the <laughs> Palestine, PLO, uh, because they tried to close the, 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 the PLO mission to the UN, observer yes. mission. And then that ended up in U.S. Uh, legislation. And you know the case, right? You know the case yes. uh, that was in the Southern District. But it began by uh, the U.N. after the condemnation of the U.S. effort to close the mission, and this was against the headquarters agreement, uh, the U.N. General Assembly said, we're going to go to arbitration. And the Secretary General asked for arbitration under Section 21 of the agreement, uh, the headquarters agreement. And uh, the, the General Assembly appointed uh, uh, its arbitrator. It was Jimenez de Rechuga, uh, who was uh, Uruguay, was it, or Argentina? Uh, you know, a, a, fa a famous Latin American jurist who had been president of the ICJ. Hmm? And the U.S. just said, no, we're not going to arbitration. It would serve no useful purpose. I remember that line great line, uh, because it's going to be on our domestic courts in our southern districts. So this would not help. And then the UN General Assembly asked the ICJ for an advisory opinion. Is the U.S. obligated to go to arbitration And the ICJ, under the headquarters agreement? And the, and the ICJ, including the American judge, Judge Swabel, said, yes, the U.S. is obligated to go to arbitration. But by then, the southern district, Judge Palmieri, in the, in the PLO case, came down on the side of the UN and PLO, so it was moot. So the, and I recall the, the went. Reagan administration did not appeal that decision. Correct, right. The Reagan administration did not appeal it, and Congress did not try to reenact it. Uh, so, but that, but that was a sex, that was an Article 21 case where, and, and the section says any dispute which is not settled by negotiation goes to arbitration. And then it says the SG or the U.S. can ask the GA to request an advisory opinion on any legal question that arises in the course of those arbitration proceedings, which is a very odd procedure where you're in arbitration and all of a sudden maybe they thought some big public international law question was going to come up in the course of that and then they could go off to the ICJ and get advice. But the first stage is arbitration. And uh, my recollection is that uh, the Secretary General proposed it in section in, in uh, 88 for the mission closure and the General Assembly then appointed. Uh, but that would need to be checked. But that it has been done once. And that's what this latest resolution uh, talks about. It, it talks doesn't talk about moving the UN. Those are separate efforts on the part of the Russians. Mm -hmm. But this resolution, which was adopted by consensus, talks about, um, you know, if it's not solved satisfactorily and in a reasonable and finite period of time, we don't know what that means, serious consideration will be given. So that's sort of a shot across the bow, as you said, to say this might be coming. And if the Russians have enough, together with other countries, and you've got enough people that say, hey, we're all for rule of law, Let's go see whether this ancient old dispute, because the U.S., the U.N. continues to say we have a long-standing legal dispute and a difference of opinion between the U.S. government and the U.N. about the validity of Section 6 and the validity of, you know, national security reservation. But don't forget the Hammarskjöld 
you know, the Hammarskjöld modus is a way out if they want to do it, but I think it's because it puts a lot of pressure on the part of the Secretary General right? that he would Can be hear from the U.S. What is your clear and convincing evidence that this diplomat from Ruritania is going to do bad things in the U.S. against U.S. national security? How is he supposed to judge that, the Secretary General? And if he yeah. comes down against the U.S. and says, no, no, I don't think that's sufficient, as a reason to, to, to bar this person from coming in, that puts him against the host country. And then if he says, yes, the Nicaragua or the Ruritanian, whoever it is, uh, should be excluded. The U.S. has clear and convincing evidence that he would do bad things. Then he's in trouble. So given the current situation I, and the, 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 the way in which secretaries, and it's not necessarily just this one, but... You know, the recent secretaries general don't want to get, don't want to be put in that position to have to choose sides. Absolutely. So, well, this is so. this is a really interesting issue, and I think for sure we are going to see more of this. So, uh, thank you so much for for coming on for covering all of this, and I have a feeling uh, in in a, in a few months, maybe maybe uh, later <laughs> this year, we may have you back. It's a complicated but fascinating issue with a lot of baggage and history to it. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast, Larry. Okay, you bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care.